Is there anything we can learn from budget proposals or interpret from them? I want to do that today. But I want to start with honing our skills on hearing errant worldviews when they speak. We'll start there on this week's Core True Act Show. The penultimate episode of the Corey Druak Show on his radio talk, at least. It will go on in podcast form, but we are here for the second to last of this edition of the show. That's a gift from me to you. If you didn't already use penultimate in your vocabulary, you're welcome. And it just means second to last. And you can use that as a much more elegant term of saying, that's the second to last donut. Or you ate the second to last piece of cake. You can now sound so elegant saying, you ate the penultimate donut as you're complaining to someone in your office for taking uh, taking too much from the the community stores. Welcome to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Glad to have you here. Amongst many other things, I get to serve the awesome people of Beachwood Church as their pastor for teaching. You're invited out any given Sunday morning at 1030 on Sunday mornings in Greenville. We'd love to have you and, uh, and, and meet you there. You can also find me your host, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for my weird name, Corey Truax. And you can email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. I think we'll start with something of a game. There are often the cases, uh, it's often the case that I hear audio on someone else's show or it's a news clip and I think that's something I can talk about but I know I can't make an entire show show out of it or I can't make an entire segment out of it. There's just not a lot to say. But if I if we put them all together, I think what we have here is a is a training game where we turn on our ears, we renew our mind, we take every thought captive, even the ones that are given to us by someone else, not the thoughts that come up in our own head, which I think is more Paul's meaning when he says take every thought captive. And uh, train ourselves to hear errant worldviews. We know there is only one true and good worldview. It's the biblical worldview. Everything outside of the Bible's parameters on everything is errant. It will lead to destruction. It will lead to sadness, anxiety. It will lead to it will lead to every bad thing that we have on the planet. And so when we hear errant things, it's good to have our ears trained to maybe identify it, label it, hear it as wrong, and know why. Why the phrase is wrong. So uh, I got I got three of those for you. One isn't audio, unfortunately, because I couldn't find it, but uh, let's start with a bill in Tennessee. There's a uh, representative there. She's in the Tennessee House Representatives, so don't hear Washington, D.C., hear Nashville, uh, Tennessee. Uh, there's a, a bill going through the her committee that would, let's call it strengthen. Of course, I'm editorializing. I'm sure those who oppose the bill would not use that word. They are strengthening the right of parents to access, uh, comment on, look over, review textbooks, library materials in their children's schools, uh, to, to view the instructional materials, maybe not lesson plans, but to, to know even more what's going on in their kid's classroom. That is, I'm going biblical worldview here, a great idea because kids belong to parents. That's the order God has set up. We talk, we talk about it often here. There are three realms of authority. There's the church, there's the family, there's the state. When the state tries to do parent things, they're doing the wrong thing and it's not going to go well. 
when when the state tries to be mom or dad, when the church tries to, when it sometimes can go into the home and try to be mom or dad and make decisions for uh, for a family. That's not good either. That's not healthy. So those three have their own authority. And because students, children, belong to parents that don't belong to the school system, it's good, biblical worldview, to strengthen that connection. Now, in that d- discussion, she's, this representative, uh, if I see her name in the story, I'll, her last name apparently is Goodwin. Uh, I will, if I find her name, her, her whole name, I'll share it with you. She said a couple things that I want to be charitable in my labeling and not call them what I think of them. I'll just say uh, some some things I find disagreeable and not well thought out and, most importantly, coming from an unbiblical worldview. Here's just a quote, and then we'll play some audio. She says, this is a very controversial bill. There's nothing simple about it. So it's controversial to strengthen access parents have to the materials that are going to be used and the content that's going to be given to their kids in school. Back to the quote. I love this. I want to talk about it for one second. Here's the quote. And when we start having government overreach, which I often hear folks talk about here, this is a prime example of government overreach. And I would hope that we would allow our teachers and our folks that are really trying to do the work of educating, leave them be, end quote. All right, let's talk. I have noticed this to be a tactic for folks on the secular progressive left that I want you to be prepared to respond to. And then we'll come back to the finding the worldview thing. So here's what I'm hearing. As this new version of conservatism in America starts to become a a little bit more aggressive, we've talked about it a lot on the show, I don't want to revisit it, uh, that the idea here simply being, it has been the case for a long time, the idea on the right is just leave everybody alone, but as the left has grown more aggressive, there is a certain part of rightism that's growing aggressive in response. So, uh, for example... The left saying, no, we're going to teach your kids that the most important thing about them is their race, uh, and we're going, we are going to teach them these sexual things. And so the, quote, aggression back is, no, you won't. We're going to keep the classroom a neutral space if there is such a thing and there's not, and not allow you to do that. And so the folks on the secular progressive left, I, I don't necessarily think it's dishonest. I think it's just wrong-headed. I, don't, I think it's just the what happens when your mind is not renewed. It gets dark and you don't reason well. They say things like, well, you guys have been talking about government overreach forever. You don't like government regulation in, in business and in finance, and you don't like the government to do anything, but here you are using the government to do, to do this thing in schools. So you're going to hear that, and you're going to be accused of hypocrisy. You're a hypocrite. You don't like using government power. So I want you prepared to respond to that. First, I know I would stop cold right there and say, hold on. So now that you've changed the subject, you've changed the subject to using the government using government power, let's decide, me and you right now, is that is that acceptable or not acceptable? You know, I know you want to, like, they, what they're trying to do is, I want to talk about you, I want to call you hypocritical. Oh, okay, hold on a second. Let's talk about the thing. And not, and not, let's not connect the two. Your view, is it good or bad to use government power to impose your will? In the, uh, obviously it's true. Okay, you, you say it's good, right? So I'm doing, I'm doing a thing that you say is good. Number two, what you're perceiving as hypocrisy, let's actually talk about the thing. My, my hypocrisy, which doesn't exist in this, does not actually talk about the merit of the idea. The merit is parents raise children. Schools partner, but parents raise them. So let's talk about that. 
what, what's your is your actual stance, your merit on the policy, is that parents should be less involved in their kids' lives? That's your argument. You're arguing parents should have less to say about their own children. All right, let me play you some audio here, and then we have to identify the worldview. Her name is Regina Goodwin. She's in the Tennessee House of Representatives talking about this education bill. Just about 20 seconds here. That's uh, very uh, disturbing, to say the least, when we have, again, a state superintendent who does not want to have anything to do with diversity, equity, inclusion. DEI is in deity. Diversity, equity, inclusion is God. Thank you for your back. All right. So part of the bill is some of that, ra- that racial essentialism that I talked about pushing, which, which is something now has become very familiar with folks on the right, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. She said diversity, equity, inclusion is God. She said, you know, it's deity. It is God. So this one's easy, right? You can spot the worldview. What is the, for her, what is the chief end of man? It's her definition of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, It's diversity, having people of different looks, not thoughts. Equity, having the end of everything be the same, not equal opportunity, but the the ends be be all the same, enforced top-down by by some kind of power. So diversity, equity, and inclusion, which means her people, people who think like her, not and definitely to the exclusion of people like me, right? That's what is the chief end of man? It is to ensure diversity, equity, and inclusion. It is her God. So much so that the other part of the worldview she's seeing here is what we've already talked about. The, the state is God. Caesar rules. You hand your children over to them, and they do whatever they want. So two worldviews there. One, Caesar's above everything. Government above all. Government above parents. And then second, she says out loud, this ideology, this goal of mine, that is God not the God of the Bible. Number two, this is from TikTok. And I got to be honest, I can't tell if this guy is a parody. It, this audio has been shared, this TikTok has been shared by a lot of people that think like me, and they criticize it. When I hear it, I think he's joking. But I that's not what everyone. That's not what the internet seems to think. It seems that this guy's being serious. So if I end up being wrong on this, and this guy's doing a parody, he's acting, he's trying to be funny, then forgive me. But the internet is, is treating this as genuine, so I'm going to treat it as genuine. Let's spot the worldview problem from this guy. I have no idea who he is. He's just some random dude on TikTok. I would peg him in his early 20s. Uh, that's about all you need to know about him. All right, here we go. It's sick and twisted that I have to work just to survive, just to live my life for basic necessities. Like, I don't want to work until the day I die just to eat and sleep. Basic human necessities, it shouldn't be controversial. And free housing, free healthcare shouldn't be a pipe dream. And I know a lot of people are going to be like, oh, you should be doing this or that. No. Like, what if I don't want to be rich? What if I want to achieve sh- I still have to work till the day I can die just to live, just to survive. People give up their entire lives just to retire at the ripe age of 60-whatever. Okay, that thing goes on for another minute and a half, uh, bemoaning this reality of life, but also bemoaning just the idea of 
Oh, yeah, even specifically bemoaning that his work takes him 40 hours per week, 40 hours per week to just get his basic necessities. So I, I think I – oh, by the way, all the blanks in there was because there was a lot of cursing, and I had to edit that out. Can you hear the worldview problem? Worldview problem one. It misses something we know. The earth is cursed. That survival is hard. He says he starts with it should not be necessary. I shouldn't have to work to survive. A young man, very literally every human, everywhere, at all times, has always had to work to survive. This is again state of nature. We talk about it on the show a good bit. Your philosophy of the state of nature will largely determine a lot of your other thoughts, opinions, and ideologies. Went from a Christian worldview, biblical worldview. We recognize the world is broken. To have anything good at all takes a ton of work. The natural state of things is to break down. Things don't naturally come together. It's quite hard to survive. It's incredible that we all do, especially at this opulence, this incredible level of wealth that we are. I don't know what this, who this young man has in his life, but someone's got to come along and say, yes, you must work to survive. That's actually the state of nature for every human at all times, for all of time. You actually must work. This idea he has, the the basic necessities should just be provided. Okay, by whom? Think just for a second about tribes in rural places in Africa, Latin America. Who? Who's supposed to provide them with housing? Who's supposed to provide them with health care? These human rights you think you have, I don't want to be overly aggressive here, but just as a matter of philosophy, in a matter of worldview. Why do you think the world is naturally good? That, the, that, there's, that there's actually plenty. There's not plenty. It takes a ton of work to survive. Even you know, this, uh, this thing he said at the end, I, I didn't play for you. The fact that it takes him 40 hours to provide for himself. Brother, let me tell you, you're incredibly, you're so blessed for the most part, for most of human history, including about 2 billion people right now, you don't work 40 hours for the week. You work every day from sun up to sundown to get the food and the shelter and the water you need for that day. You don't store up anything else. You get up the next day and you do it. Natural life without us having the, the Genesis mandate and humans going out to cultivate life and life-giving structures, it is hard it's arduous. And if you don't have a Christian worldview, you'll get caught up. If you don't have a biblical worldview, that's my preferred term, you'll get caught up in philosophies that say, well, life should just be easy. It's not. The world is cursed. And I, I need to go fast on this one. The last one was just uh, several several folks I noticed in a uh, hearing about the train derailment in Ohio. There, there seemed to be the attitude of, why, oh, why did this happen? And the question is almost always, why government, why? That's what I kept hearing. Why government didn't you do A, B, C, and D? And it was, while there might be some role for governments to play in those uh, in those things, I don't think there was anything missed here in that particular case. It was just indicative to me of worldview. It used to be when disasters happened, the instinct would be to ask, why God, why? We have entire 
categories of theology for that question. Why, God, do these things happen? Do these natural disasters or these man-made calamities, why do things happen? And we have so replaced God with the state that the natural question isn't even a supernatural one or a metaphysical one anymore at all. When anything bad happens, we don't ask why God, why? We ask the new God government. We ask, why government, why? Did you allow such a thing to happen? You were supposed to be there to protect us. You were supposed to be there to oversee us. And it's just another uh, another example of unbiblical worldview right in front of us. And I hope that's a good exercise to hear, whether in hearings or on TikTok, when uh, an idea hits you wrongly, it's good to get to the bottom of it, of asking, why does this person have this so wrong? You're usually going to find something deficient in their worldview that just doesn't match up with the person who made the world, or the, the being who made the world. When we return, I told you I wanted to talk about how budgets can can be important. They can be, uh, I think some people call them immoral documents, telling about what we prioritize. I want to do that and a lot more when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. You have likely heard it said that budgets, national budgets, state budgets, they are often just political documents. They're a wish list. They're a priority list with no intention of ever passing. If you've heard that, that's largely the case. That's been the case for at least most of my lifetime that when budgets get put forward in the political world, they're just political documents trying to tell you what that person cares about with no intention of ever passing. There is a concurring argument that budgets are moral documents. It tells us what we care about, what our priorities are. I want to talk about that in just a moment. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts, and right here on His Radio Talk. Find me, your host, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just look for me, Corey Truax. It's easy to do. You can also email the show at Show at gmail.com, Show at gmail.com. I bring it up because the budget was just released a couple weeks ago. I used to really pour over these documents, but uh, I've only I only recently did did some of that, looking at summaries and or at least executive summaries, some of the highlights. I thought it would be a good exercise to examine the budget in light of what we might know biblically. Some of those concepts are black and white; some are kind of gray. There have been good folks in the faith that come down on either side of these things when it comes to civil governments. But it's worthwhile. Even if it is just a political document, there is some morality to it. I mean, you know that for your own household, right? If you really are careful with how you spend your money, if you plan, if you have your own documents for what the the budget is, it tells you something about what you value, how much you give to the church or to charity, or you're helping someone else out, where you, how much you spend on entertainment versus how much you plan for the future. You know things about yourself, your morality, by what you spend on. That's your own household. Not much different in a state or the feds. So here's what I learned when I started looking through the proposed budget from the executive branch of the federal government as it stands right now. I think I wrote down, yeah, five takeaways I had. One, our military spending is crazy high. And it was a proposal of a a 3.5% increase on that military spending. Now, uh, the at least two thoughts on that. One, it, one is, well, biblically, what is government given to do? 
That answer is to punish evil, to reward good, to keep order. Certainly, individual leaders or uh, of in individual countries are mandated to protect their citizens from outward threat. So spending money on a military shouldn't give any Christian any kind of a stomachache about that. Uh, militaries are going to be necessary until we beat our, what is it, our something into plowshares, our swords into plowshares. You know, the, our weapons of war become weapons of, of cultivation is what I think uh, the prophet Isaiah says. But I just, I look at the number and the proposed increase and know two things. One, we could defend ourselves from anything already. There's not a military on the planet that could be a threat to the United States of America right now. And so then two, all that spending is often us being the defender of maybe the weak, weaker countries all over the world. I, I, I used to be okay with that. I, as we have become, as we begin to, I don't think, enter our twilight as a country necessarily, and we're getting older, demographics are not in our favor, but you just wonder about how, uh, other countries and their, their morality needing to stand up on their own two feet. That's the, you know, the second overall thought I had th- on this was that, that, that spending, that le- it's almost, is that 40, about, maybe it's a little bit more than a third of the budget? That level of spending is why so much of Western Europe spends 1%, 2% on their military, of, the, of their entire budget. Why so much of the world spends on a lot of goodies, universal this and universal that, because they don't spend on their militaries. And then America spends just this insane amount on our militaries because the rest of the world knows if they get in trouble from a Russia or a China, we're just going to get involved ourselves or spend a bunch of money that we don't have on that. So it's one, is the military spending is quite high. I suspect the opposition party is going to want it even higher than it is. And so I, don't, I, I, I struggled in two ways. One, military spending is actually a biblical type of, I don't want to call it a mandate, but a biblical good. Countries need to be able to defend themselves from foreign threat. Just the bottom line is I think we're already really, really good at that. We don't have to spend a ton more to do that. And it's that amount of spending that keeps other countries kind of, uh, like in some ways, just leaning on us so they can have these other systems of, quote, free stuff, end quote. All right, so that's one. Military spending, super high, and continuing to go high. Two, admittedly, I don't think anyone can... Anyone can argue the sentence I'm about to uh, give you. There are a lot of taxes. Just, I, I remember the first time we had a $4 trillion budget. It was back in 2011 or 12, I think. I should have Googled that before I started. We are already at, this thing is close to $7 trillion, and you got to pay for that somehow, and it is a lot of taxes. There is a, like a surtax on people who have, who already have a hundred million dollars of wealth, which is hard to specify because what is wealth? Does the homes count? The equity you have in stocks? It seems like that is going to be part of the formula, by the way, that your unrealized wealth, wealth that you don't actually have in your pocket, but is in a stock somewhere, that that wealth could be could be taxed. Uh, uh, there's a couple other taxes here too. The corporate tax rate goes from 21 to 28. Uh, there's some taxes on foreign earnings. So as let's say Apple, Google, they make money overseas, I'm trying to tax those earnings as well. Uh, there's one I, I kind of like when when big companies start buying their stock back 
raising the price of their stock and therefore keeping smaller investors from being able to get in on the value of their companies, yeah, they should probably pay something on that. And so it's a, a raise on, it's rise, raising their stock buyback tax. So at least all of those, I, w- I have something I want to say about those. I think the, argue with me if you think I have this wrong. One of the themes I would pick up in the law, so go Deuteronomy, is that taxation tends to be largely proportional. So if you have a lot, let's say you have a flat rate of tax, you do pay a lot. The fact that you have a lot, you should, because you have uh, you have much more, you pay much more. That's totally fair. I think I would argue anyone that says, well, the rich need to pay their fair share. Yeah, absolutely. They have a lot. They should pay their rate, just like the rest of us do, and it's going to be a gigantic amount. I mean, if I can't think of a rich person right now. Uh, is it Bill Gates? Bill Gates or Elon Musk or uh, the guy out in Nebraska who does the investing. If any of those guys paid a flat rate like I did, they pay a lot more taxes than, than I do. Proportionality is something I would ar- argue in favor of. I think a lot of these go beyond proportionality. Right Right now, it is, I mean, it's over half of f- federal taxes at least get paid by folks with a lot already. So raising it, uh, I think we le- we leave the idea of proportionality. On the corporate taxes uh, rising, two things bother me there. One, this is a globally competitive world now. It is so much easier to build overseas, to move your workforce overseas. We've seen American communities devastated, decimated by moving textiles to Mexico and to China, by moving uh, some of our energy production. Th- uh, companies and corporations chase their lowest tax rate they can. And often what happens is with, with the ease of that, when you raise those rates, you just lose business. You end up losing revenue because people will reshore their business to whatever lowest tax rate you can get. Or here's the, the other option that gets overlooked too much. We just all pay it as consumers. Just think about being a business owner for a minute. You're looking at your cost sheet, and you have a line item for what you pay your people in salaries. You have a line item for what you pay for their insurance. You have a line item for future investment equipment you want to buy, but you have a line item for taxes. And if your line item, the money you were saving for taxes, I'm just making up for making up numbers here, was two million dollars for this year, and the tax rate goes up, and now that needs to be three million dollars in that line item. You need to come up with an extra million. There's lots of things you could do. You can cut. You can cut your people to make up that money so people lose jobs. You can cut their benefits in some ways. or So that's that's one of your options. You can cut other things on your balance sheet. but Or you can go over to your revenue sheet. What money is coming in? Well, it's, it's, it's only this amount. We need to come up with a million dollars. All right, well, let's raise our price because we don't, we don't have any competitive disadvantage. If I'm out here selling cars... I'm Nabisco, I'm selling food, I'm needing to compete against Toll House. Well, Toll House has to pay the same tax I do, and so I'm going to try to raise my my price method, and Toll House responds, well, now we can. And so it ends up being that we end up just paying those taxes that were technically on corporations, or those corporations do a little bit of all those things. Cut some jobs, cut some benefits, raise the price over here. But in the end, it actually hurts people. 
that, that always needs to be front of mind when we are talking about economic and tax policy. I, str- I struggle with that because I'm a I'm I'm in the, I'm in this world of policy, but the reason I care about policy is because it affects people. I mean, as I've gotten older, I even just see families in my church. Like when I'm when I'm thinking about the idea of uh, gi- giant co- companies, I and, and them needing to either cut benefits, cut salaries, cut jobs, or pa- I, I think about some guys in my church that work for those companies, that right there on the manufacturing line. And how that might affect them. When I think about policy, I think about people I know that have to budget. That I think about their their, their bills going up seven percent because this company's their taxes went up seven percent. I mean, there's consequences to these things that we got to be adult enough to wrestle through. And one of the consequences of a higher corporate tax rate is all those things. It usually means job loss, benefit loss, higher prices for us all because it gets passed down to the consumer as it always does. And then, so th- those are, the, those are uh, of those taxes, the only one I, I'm a f- kind of a fan of is the stock buyback thing, again, because lower-level investors are damaged when companies buy back their stock and r- raise their price. There's one other tax, though, that I found surprising and really terrible. Uh, I think about my real estate agent friends. You know, when you get into your own business. Often what people do is they start their LLC, they'll start their business, and then they are the sole employee of the business. So we'll take me, take Corey Truax. I decide I'm going to start my own media company. All right, so I am no longer, Corey Truax is not earning the revenue of the company. Let's say the company sells a bunch of ads for shows and podcasts that I do, um, get, get, get invited to speak at things and get honorariums for that. Corey doesn't technically make the money. The company makes the money, and then I pay myself a salary. I decide I'm going to give myself so many thousands of dollars that year. So I'm actually getting to pay the corporate tax rate on the the money coming through the the business, but then I have to pay just the personal income tax rate on however much money I give myself. So just using round numbers, the company earns a million dollars. I decide to pay myself $70,000 for that year. The corporate tax rate is much more advantageous to me, so I get to keep more of that money. One of the one of the taxes here is to eliminate that, to have you pay the almost eliminate that that ability, so that you have to pay personal tax. If I'm understanding the uh, the policy correctly, on all the money that comes through, and when it comes to again real estate agents and individual contractors, that's a hard thing on some folks. Uh, so it's what's in this budget? Well, military spending is super high, and two, there's a lot of taxes in it that I think would hurt a lot of people. Uh, well, uh, one more point on the tax thing. As as I look through the numbers, and even some of the proposals for other taxes to add, there's just not enough. There's not enough of money in, in the economy. Well, there's enough in the money in the economy. There's not enough money in the pockets of of the wealthy to pay for all this stuff. It's it's one of the reasons why it's it's fanciful. It's it's not a, it's not a serious document. It's not a serious proposal. Uh, two, three other three other things in the budget. We'll go quickly. One is the attempt with a lot of these taxes to extend entitlements. So that is Social Security, Medicare, uh, for our elderly folks. We we got to have an adult discussion about this eventually. But going back to b- biblical worldview, 
and I think even going back to the reformers, you can by the reformers I mean guys like Luther. You can see there being an ethic of making sure people who truly can't take care of themselves are taken care of. The category they gave was the deserving poor. So that was, for them, the widow who wasn't allowed to work. Someone's got to take care of her. The orphan who doesn't have parents. and You can't count on kids to take care of themselves. That's not right. So someone's got to take care of them. We have inserted, probably rightfully, into that category older folks. Eventually your body just cannot take the beating of work. And someone's, there's, there's got to be dignity in aging. So one of the projects in the Southern Baptist Convention I most love is helping take care of the spouses of of deceased people who spent a lot of time in ministry or the people who actually did ministry their whole lives. And maybe, yeah, they're they're drawing Social Security, but there's no, that's actually not enough money to live on. And they were in ministry their whole lives. So they didn't get to make a ton of money and save, save for themselves. And so there are ministries that do this. So uh, hear me say the concept of Social Security, I get it, even Medicare, I get them as I get them as concepts, but we do have to have some adult conversation here. There's there's not enough money for f- to keep this going, especially as we age. You know, you've heard my idea a bunch of times about phasing those phasing those out over a long time, but uh, we we do need to do something to make them solvent. That's a, the the right thing to do. The right thing to do is make them solvent, and you can't take benefits away right now. If I mean, I've, I've now again think about people. Think about my own parents. I, as dad and mom got older, I am sure that the uh, let's go the the formula, the formula for taking care of them when they got older, I'm sure they included Social Security. That's part of the financial plan. And so even people are right now in their their 40s and like I'm about to be in my 40s. I'm thinking about what it's going to be like 20 years from now, and being able to pay for things. So the Right now, my formula doesn't include Social Security. I don't think that money is going to be there when I get there. So I got to make other plans. But if you're already in your fifties and you, you're making a financial plan, you're sat down even even with a advisor. They're considering how much money you're going to need for the however long you're going to be alive after you stop working. One of your sources of income is Social Security. It's not right to take that from people. They've banked on it. Yes, they've paid into it, but even more, I think, clear on the morality of it. You, you have told people, plan on this. Plan on this money being there. You can't take it from them. Now, for me, people younger than me, younger than I am, we have some discussion to have because that's not it's not sustainable. Um, so it, that's another uh, point three on this one is trying to extend those entitlements. Four is child tax credits. That is one of the things I found in our tax code over the years, being a childless person, single for most of those years. We really want people to have kids. <laughs> like it's a, it is a feature of our tax code, especially during COVID. We beefed that thing up like crazy. What's what's funny about this provision is it has support from people like Marco Rubio. I think Mitt Romney supports these provisions because they, a Mormon and a Catholic, are very uh, very comfortable with one of their values, Mormon and Catholic values, have a bunch of kids, uh, having that being supported by. A, a governmental uh, funding mechanism. I got a lot of parents who listen. Listen, guys, I, I don't have any resentment for you that you get some extra tax benefit. Kids are insanely expensive to have. I am sure I've, and I've I've heard, uh, but well, I know we, we got to get the spending under control somehow. Because this is not just a refund for a lot of people. This is an 
this is just an it's an almost another entitlement just giving out money for having kids but I can be argued on that one because uh, I know a lot of you I've heard it from a lot of folks on the right lately we we need more kids kids are expensive let's incentivize people having children uh, but that's in there and then the final one that I want to examine there actually is finally a good bit of funding for border control and border patrol. Again, we're just examining, trying the best we can from biblical perspective. Countries are supposed to have borders. God lays that out in the table of nations in Genesis, I think, 11. That's You have to have good order. Let everything be done in good order. God is not a, an author of chaos. There has I'm, I'm about as pro-immigration as you can get on the right. I, I want more people here, but the the process has to be right. And what we have right now on the border, it is quite sad. Again, if budgets are moral documents, consider what's happening in Latin America. Consider what's happening at our border. There's drug cartels running things in a lot of Latin America, driving people north. And because we have not, we have been so porous, we have been so nebulous about what we're going to do when people arrive at the border, we have been this magnet for people to do very dangerous things, and it's had consequences. Now, I remember a couple of years ago, a uh, year ago maybe. Do you remember that semi truck found in San Antonio? It was like fifty people in it, just dead. Just they baked to death. They baked to death in the back of a semi truck because they were trying to get here. We got we got to deter that kind of behavior, and we have to have the resources to protect the border. That is a uh, something that every country should do. That's not just an American thing. Every country should uh, should be pursuing that. That's part of their mandate. All right. So that is. The idea of budgets. Budgets, yes, they are political documents. They're also moral documents, and these are things that we should always be siphoning through using the biblical worldview that we've got. When we come back, I got a f- gosh, a couple more things I want to do uh, here on the penultimate episode of the Corey Truex Show, at least on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. I'll be back in just a bit. As the precious broadcast minutes tick tock away, I should mention we're going to save our chronological Bible reading content for next week because really I gave you everything I had to say about numbers last week. And by the time we get to next week, basically Deuteronomy will be complete and I have a lot to say about Deuteronomy. Isn't it nuts how much the Bible is the first five books? I mean, here we are in March staring at April and if you are going to read it in a way where you can get the entire thing in in a year. It will take you a quarter of the year just to read the first five books. That might need to tell us something about how much attention we give in our own Bible reading and meditation on where we might want to spend it. We are not saying, I am not saying, that it's more important than the epistles or more important than the poetry books or the prophecy books. I am saying it should tell us something. The first five books, the law, the Pentateuch, it, it means something that we should uh, spend some time there and not run away with it from it like we all like we often do. So uh, anyway, we'll do it next week. We'll talk about Deuteronomy, and I have quite a few things I want to say there. And while I wanted to get into some other things going on in the in the news in the news cycle, just maybe always trying to look a step deeper. While I want to do that, I think what I have for you in these final ten minutes or so is a little bit better. I was the host or the facilitator for one of our church small groups on Sunday. It was a really awesome time. We are studying Habakkuk, the way we're handling small group at Beachwood Church in 
2023 is we're picking a book of the Bible. And our small groups meet once a month. And so when you get together, it's like a book club, except we read a book of the Bible together. Thus far, we've done 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and we just did Habakkuk. A really profound book that asks one of those seminal core questions of, of why do bad things happen. I don't finish that with why why do bad things happen to good people because there are no good people, but the, the Habakkuk structure is, is Habakkuk saying to God, almost like an accusation, why are you letting terrible things happen? And God responding back, well, don't, don't worry about the terrible things happening in your country. I'm going to use the, uh, the Assyrians or Babylonians, can't remember which one, I'm going to use the Babylonians or the Assyrians to come and punish the, t- the bad people doing all the bad things in your country, Israel. To which Habakkuk responds, wait, 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 no. Not, they're even worse. You can't use the worst people to punish these people. And God's response is, is a lot. But ultimately, it's, it, it leads us to Habakkuk's most famous phrase, the righteous live by faith. That God's going to do in his wisdom what he wants with the tools that he wants. You know, I even thought about the United States. We are in a lot of ways Babylon in that way. I am sure we have been used in the past to punish sinful nations, and we are Babylon. We will be punished by either our own leaders or sinful nations. And anyway, it's a great book. And in the discussion of the book, someone in our church, who I will remain nameless, just said a kind of profound thing, but I don't even think she knew how profound it was, at least for me. We were talking about some of the complaints Habakkuk makes of his own people. These are, these are the things that his, his countrymen are doing. There's idolatry, there's slavery, there's some economics. There's questions of economic injustice and how much interest is being paid. If you didn't know that, that's in the Bible. Complaints about justice when it comes to wealthy people and how much interest they are charging. And that led to a brief discussion, maybe 20 minutes of the discussion being, uh, the the old disagreement inside Christianity, uh, gospel versus mercy ministry. There are those that tend to use that old phrase that is attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, but it's not even his, and not, it's terrible theology. The phrase is, uh, preach the gospel all the time, and when necessary, use words. Just the idea here being, just do good works. Take care of the poor, take care of the weak, do do mercy for people, and that is the gospel. It's not. The gospel is a set of truths. It is that God is good and holy, that he cannot be around sin, that man is sinful, and therefore we have a problem. Jesus solves that problem by being the sacrifice for our sin, so God gets to be just in punishing sin. And now we get to uh, ha- have exchanged our sinfulness for his righteousness. That's the gospel in a nutshell there. We can, uh, we can do lots of good things, but if we have not said the truth about at least those three things— uh, God, Jesus, and us, then we haven't really given the gospel. But there's been that group of people that say, just do good stuff. And then there are those that say, forget about the that stuff, just preach the gospel. We've got to get the message of the gospel to people. And those are two extremes. Most people are somewhere in between, and you tend towards one or the other. Like even the folks who would be preach the gospel, forget about the rest, I think would, would recognize if someone is genuinely starving and is genuinely starving, until they're something in their belly, they can't really listen to you all that well. If someone's in, if someone's falling apart emotionally, until they found some kind of stability, your preaching of the gospel is unlikely to be penetrative to what's going on in their lives. And vice versa. There's usually everyone's in between. 
But as we were talking about that, it becomes a question of it became a question of how we deal with the people around us or doing mercy versus gospel. And this this young lady says in the in the small group, this to me very profound thing on the question of how we deal with people, gospel versus ministry, especially people that we find disagreeable in a culture that finds us disagreeable that might not like us. And she said, you just ask yourself this question, do I actually love the person I'm talking to? Do I love them? That hit me hard. I don't think about that much. Not enough, at least. I think about what's right and wrong, what's true and false. Then I, th- I think about stories of people I know. and co- like I thought of several things immediately. Like one, I thought of a, co- a friend of mine who has a co-worker who is a super legalist, KJ the only person. And some of the hard conversations they've had, I know that they would have been hard for me. And I know the, the conversation would just be improved if I wonder, if I, if I remind myself to ask the question, do I love him or her? Do I want what's best for them? And if I can answer that question, yes, I actually do love this person made in the image of God. I am going to talk about this differently. I am starting to swim deep in the waters of the the debates happening in Christianity over theonomy, seeking power to make biblical things the law. And I find some people really off-putting. And there might have to be, <clears throat> maybe I have to have a, a debate or a discussion with one of these people eventually. It's going to be important for me to remember, do I love this person? To remember to ask, do I do I love them? They're made in the image of God. Do I, in my heart, genuinely love them and want the best for them? You know, I, I mentioned there, there's people in the faith, but it, it's one it's one of the elements, one of the markers that I, I don't see in a lot of Christian media in how we talk about people who are dead wrong, people who are, who are harmful in our culture, but like uh, the way we talk about folks who support the sexual mutilization and hormone pumping into children. We call that the trans movement. The way we talk to those folks online or talk about them, I wonder if there is a lot of love there. Now you might Im- immediately say, well, they're, they're taking, they are taking advantage, they are hurting the weak. There's no space for, for love. But hold on. Yeah, I understand sometimes things have to get... I mean, I've been one of the people who say things harshly about that group. Is there is there a heart of love there, or is it is it is it anger-generated at... Is it anger-generated because we love the truth so much, or is it anger-generated because they've offended us in some way? It's just worth asking. Am I behaving... And my, is my attitude towards the people I disagree with, is it informed by the answer to the question, do I love them? And if I do love them, would I say it to say this thing or say it in this tone or write it in this way? I'll admit it for myself. I had kind of a laugh of a moment, but then also an incredulous one with a recent clip of the President of the United States who implied that when he was a boy, a young boy, like 9 or 10 years old, because he was asked, you know, when did you come to the epiphany that you're for you're for gay marriage? And he he gave a really ludicrous, obviously untrue answer, where he said he was somewhere in Delaware and his dad uh, was riding he was riding with his dad, and there was two men, you know, well dressed, and they kissed each other goodbye on a sidewalk. 
And his dad said to him, you know, Joey, you know, that's just that's love right there because the president at nine or ten years old was confused by what he just saw. Do not know that every word of that is fabricated. That wasn't a thing. In Delaware, just a gay couple walking around with uh, public displays of affection. Guys, that wasn't happening in Manhattan when the president was a child. I, mean, I checked the calendar. He, it would have been like 1959 or 60. No, no, that didn't happen. And I, I can even feel it in myself right now, saying, that what a, what a lie. And then it's just also d- just disprovable in the fact, well, all right, then you had like an entire career where you never, you didn't believe any of these things until the last 10 years when the world went crazy. So then that, I had that negative reaction, but then asked, just genuinely, do I love that guy? Or do I have antipathy for him? And some of you might actually have antipathy. You you do not like this guy, and you feel you're even wondering if that's okay. Like, yeah, well, he he does this evil and that evil and that evil, so I hate him. And here I even got some imprecatory psalms from David, or you pray for the for the downfall of the wicked. Yeah, I know. I'm not saying I have an answer yet. I'm saying I started. When she asked that question, it reset my paradigm on how I want to interact with the people to my right, to my left, theologically, ideologically. That when I hear something that I know is in error, that I somehow, in my own mind, pierce through the thing I just heard, the untruth, the error, and see a human right there. A human just spoke that error. A human just had that falseness. And I want to then deal in a way that is in accordance with my Savior. I'm supposed to be in conformity to Him. He heard a lot of false, stupid stupid things, and sometimes He responded with some aggression, but He didn't. I don't think He did with the same rate that I do. Just something for you to consider is do you love the person you're talking to? Next week, I'll be back for the final episode of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk. Until then, everybody, peace and love.